Good morning. So we've uh, finished our series on the Reformation, and we are kicking off uh, our new series on the New Testament survey, which will complement our Old Testament survey that we finished uh, what back in the back in the spring. Uh, so next month, next week, we'll, we'll start with Matthew. But what I wanted to do is I wanted to give you uh, I wanted to give you a little bit of a history lesson. And really fill in the gaps between uh, Malachi six, no four, and Matthew one, because uh, a lot happened between in in those four hundred uh, years. And if you just if if you're reading the Old Testament and you come to the end of it and you flip over to the New Testament, uh, there are a lot of developments that have happened. So what I want to do is I want to I want to take you through a crash course. A history lesson and, and, and tell you some of the things that happened, some of the developments that happened religiously, so that as we go through the New Testament, uh, some things will make more sense and, and, and things will be more meaningful to you. So, uh, broadly, this uh, if you were if you were to uh, look in a contemporary history book. Uh, you probably wouldn't find uh, a book or, or chapters titled the Intertestamental Period because that's not very politically correct. Can anyone imagine why? If, if, if something is intertestamental, uh, what does that imply about how many testaments there are? Yeah, intertestamental means between the testaments. And that implies that there is an old and a new, a first and a second. Jews don't really like the idea of a new testament or new covenant replacing their old covenant. And so uh, secularly speaking, uh, this time frame is referred to as Second Temple Judaism. Remember, Solomon's temple has been destroyed. And uh, a new temple has been built, uh, as, and you see that as the, new, as the Old Testament is coming to a close. Um, and so this time frame, all the way up until when that temple is destroyed in, by the Romans in AD 70, this whole time frame is, is uh, popularly referred to now as Second Temple Judaism. But we're going to focus on the uh, uh, intertestamental period, which really begins about 140-ish years after this starts and about 70-something years before this ends. So it's the intertestamental period is within that, but it's almost all of it. And so there's, uh, there's six uh, categories that we can divide uh, the, this period into, and they're named because of who is possessing or who is governing Israel. When you see these names, uh, those are gonna, that's going to be the nation or the people group that is governing or is in charge of Israel, or, or Judea, rather. The first is going to be the Persian Empire. Uh, we see the Persians... Uh, um, defeating the Babylonians as, as the New Testament is coming to a close. And we see uh, for some time there's a few prophets that minister during this time. Esther is during this time. Uh, Daniel is during this time. Uh, and that goes for about 200 years. Then you have the Greek era. 
which is much shorter, and there's a reason for that. And then you have the Egyptian area for uh, a little bit longer, about 130, 140 years or so, from 323 to 198. The Syrian era for about 40 years or so. The Maccabean era uh, from 165 to, one thir- to, to 63, so, almost, so just a little over a century. And then the bad boys, the Romans, the Roman legions. Uh, from 63 all the way to, to 4 BC. Now, the Romans are still going to be in power for quite some time after this, but remember, we're, we're just interested in looking at what's going on and what's developing in, in the white, you know, on those like two or three white pages, you know, between the Old Testament and, the, you know, in your Bible. We're trying, to fi- we're trying to fill in that white space. And 4 BC is where your New Testament picks up. So, let's begin with the Persians. According to, according to Daniel 5, 30 and 31, the Persians in 536 B.C. Uh, defeat the Babylonians and they become the power on the hill for, um, for two centuries. And they're going to enjoy this status as, as the king of the hill uh, as the Old Testament comes to a close. And for about 70 years after God's voice, uh, God's prophetic voice falls silent. And what I mean by that is, uh, God is not sending any more prophets. Um, for all intents and purposes, God is silent. For all tents and purposes, not intensive. Aaron can learn. Uh, the Persians are relatively tolerant of the Jewish remnant in Palestine. Um, and you, you can see uh, friendly terms being developed uh, in Esther and, uh, and because of Daniel. Uh, As the Jews return to Judea, there are two things that they return with. And, wow, everything just... Okay, don't... You do not see this part. Only this. Okay. So the, the, the Jews return to Judea with two commitments. They are devoted to monotheism, and they are devoted to to obeying the scriptures. Can anyone... Suggest why. Why did they go into exile? Going after other gods and disobeying the scriptures. <coughs> does, it, does anybody know the particular commandment uh, for which uh, is the straw that broke the camel's back? Failing to observe the Sabbath. Yeah, God, God says, uh, I think it's in Jeremiah. He says, for every Sabbath that you've uh, neglected to observe, you will keep 70 years, or uh, seven years, rather. So they, they return with this renewed, vigorous devotion and commitment to those two uh, aspects of their faith and religion. Now, not all Jews left Persia. Some of them found themselves quite comfortable uh, in the life that they had, uh, had um, developed uh, while, in, while in the exile. So not all Jews leave Persia, and not all Jews that left Persia returned to Judea. I mean, something that we're going to see as we go through this 
is that it is, and, th- and this is still a true principle for us today as the, as the people of the new covenant, is that it is costly to, to live up to the standards and to apply the principles of, of being God's people. It, it can be a very costly thing. And so for the Jews to uh, adhere to orthodoxy, to true uh, foundational truth that God has laid down, it, it can be costly. And so uh, they may not want to go back into that. And so a lot of them settle in area all around uh, uh, Judea and Palestine. Palestine. And uh, as you read the New Testament, I believe in Acts, in James, and in the beginning of First Peter when it talks about the diaspora, uh, that... Uh, uh, that is the group of Jews that now live abroad. So, so the diaspora, in addition to the Jews that were originally scattered, uh, more Jews are going and settling out there. So they're not all back in Judea. Uh, because Jews are going and living away from Jerusalem, they're too far away to conveniently attend the, the temple. Because remember, the temple, uh, uh, the sacrifices that go on in the temple, the atonement that would go on in the temple... Uh, the the priests who were supposed to be studying the law and, and disseminating the the knowledge of the law are in the temple. The temple is the hub and it's the nexus of Jewish religious life. But when you live 200 miles, 300 miles away from the temple, and it can take weeks or months to get there, and you're supposed to go, I believe, three times a year, that's not really practical or convenient. And so people would create local places of assembly and worship and fellowship and that that was something that was first established in the exile in babylon when there was no temple so they had no choice but now we're seeing uh the jews uh erect uh synagogues and we don't know exactly how rapidly they developed but by the time of the new testament the synagogues are everywhere even in judea's you know back corner of galilee or uh, backyard of galilee uh, the scribes uh, be, uh, develop. You're going to see them in the New Testament. The scribes are those who handle the law. They handle the scriptures and the scrolls. Uh, they're doing the translating, and they're the initial ones doing the teaching. Uh, in the north, uh, the Samaritans build their own temple, and they establish a rival religion to Judaism. They only believe in the first five books of Moses. They don't they don't believe anything that uh, you know. First and Second Samuel says about David and the line of David, the the king of David, or the lineage of David, or the the son of David that would come. They don't believe in the Messiah that the prophets are are prophesying about. They only believe in the first five books. So it's an incomplete uh, understanding of of what God has revealed. They're established in the north, uh, and they're going to be around for a while. So then, uh, after after the Persians enjoy uh, being king of the hill for about two centuries, uh, uh, a man by the name of Alexander, who was he was Greek and he was great, which is why he's called Alexander the Great. Uh, he's thought to be the the greatest conqueror of all time. He comes on the scene, and within a very very short amount of time, he uh, th- 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 this is the, the the territory that he gained within 13 years. Now, the the width of the United States is 
I'm, I'm thinking it's about that big. That is a massive amount of territory for an army to, uh, uh, to conquer in 13 years on foot. You know, they're not, they're not, they're not flying C-5s and, and resupplying with cargo. So Alexander comes on the scene, and within a short amount of time, he conquers Persia. He conquers Babylon. He conquers uh, Egypt. He conquers Palestine, Syria, and western India. And to the west, uh, he, he's, he owns now Thrace to the west and all the way to the, um, in, the Indus Valley, you know, approaching, like going into Asia on the east. Massive amount of territory. And Alexander saw himself... Here's, a, here's another map showing, uh, showing his conquests, the, the routes that he took. That's Alexander. He was looking a little pale on the one on the right. Okay. So Alexander loved two things. He loved ancient wisdom and religions. He saw that there was great beauty and great value in things that were ancient, things that had stood the test of time. And he also loved all things Greek. And he believed that he was commissioned or sent by the gods to be a prophet of, of Hellenism. And what I mean by Hellenism, it's not the study of all things Helen. It, Hellenism, Hel, Hellas uh, is the Greek word for Greece. Um, so Hellenism is Greek culture, Greek religion, Greek, Greek values, Greek principles, a Greek perspective, looking at things the way a Greek would. Uh, that's Hellenism. And he believed that the gods had sent him and had empowered him to be this prophet of Hellenism and to spread Greek culture. And what he had planned to do was as his army is going around conquering the, the, known, the known world at the time, he would leave uh, his Greek little remnants of his Greek soldiers in the conquered territories, and they would marry with, with the foreign women and have children and settle down and basically create these Greek colonies. That was his, that was his um, intent. However, after 12, 13 years of conquering, you are months and months and months away from home. You haven't even been home for uh, a long time. You're, you've been fighting. You've lost friends. You're tired. You have all this spoil. You want to go home with what life you have left and in, enjoy things. You don't, you don't want to start anew uh, so far from home. Because, because his soldiers loved Greek things too. So the, his soldiers really don't buy into this program. And, uh, and so Alexander has to return home, but he dies after only 13 years of conquest, he, he began, uh, he, he became the emperor or the king of Greece at 20. He dies at 33, short-lived. And that is, uh, and that was even foretold in, uh, in Daniel 8. So his, uh, and, and also being fulfilled, uh, fulfilling what Daniel 8 says, his empire, um, and you, and you can re, you can look that up if you want. He is the he is the shaggy goat in the prophecy. Uh, his empire, as the prophecy said, would be divided between the four horns or, or his generals. And 
Okay, well, that, that's going into the next section. Um, during this time, uh, Alexander, b- because of his conquest, because he's spreading Greek, the Greek culture, and more importantly, the Greek language is spreading. That's going to have a little something to do with the transmission of, of the New Testament texts in a couple hundred years. Even 300 years later, uh, Greek has become the English of the old world. It is spoken everywhere. Has anyone here um, gone to other countries, like visited? Has it been surprising how everybody speaks English? Yeah, I've been to China, I've been to India, and I've been to Africa. And on each trip, we've stopped in Singapore, Japan, um, I think one or two other places as as stopping or as layovers, everybody speaks English. You, you, it is impossible to truly get lost because you will find someone who speaks English. Um, that's what that's what Greek was in 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 the ancient world. Everyone spoke it. Um, and what's interesting is even as the Roman Empire comes onto the scene, they love Greek. They love Greek everything. And so even though they even though they even though they uh, conquer the Greek people, the Greek culture conquers them. And the Romans are, like, basically, for all intents and purposes, Greek themselves. Um, now, as Hellenism is spreading throughout the world, it begins to conflict with Jews who try to cling to their, their Hebrewism, their Hebrewicness. Uh, they're trying to cling to their Hebrew culture and their Hebrew language and their Hebrew religion. And there, there is a cultural schism or rift that begins to develop, and it never goes away. Uh, and it develops between Jews who are willing to adopt Hellenism for social and economic advantage uh, and Jews who want to retain their, their distinctive Hebrew culture and language and faith. Um, and, and even though the Jews aren't truly speaking Hebrew anymore, um, because even in, uh, in Ezra's time, the, the old Hebrew tongue had, had been lost, uh, they are now speaking, anybody know? Aramaic. Aramaic. So the Hellenistic Jews look, uh, uh, look at the uh, Orthodox uh, Hebrews as being staunch and rigid and old-fashioned and and the uh, the Hebrew Jews look at the Hellenistic Jews as, at best, compromisers, at worst, traitors. And that attitude is going to develop and remain even into the pages of the New Testament. You, even when you get to uh, Acts six, and you see you see Hellenized Hellena, Hellenized widows being neglected. So, uh, so Alexander. So Alexander uh, dies. His his army or his uh, empire is split up between his four generals, and the um, the one we that we care about is uh, Seder Ptolemy. Um, I think yeah, that's that's him right there. And uh, Ptolemy is given uh, the, the the southwestern region of Alexander's empire, uh, Egypt, and the areas around Egypt. And again, this is this allotment is fulfilling uh, fulfilling Daniel eight twenty one and twenty two. Now, uh, 
Ptolemy is not given uh, Judah, but he takes it anyway. And that's going to that's gonna cause uh, uh, some problems with one of his generals named Seleucius, who was uh, uh, given, it's unclear exactly when, he, uh, when it was allotted to him, but he was given um, the, basically uh, the Levant, um, Judah, and let's see. Uh, you, can you see right here? Where's my mouse? Well, my mouse is on here, but this, this whole area, uh, old, old Babylon, old Persia, all the way here. This is, this is uh, the Seleucid territory. And look, what's right in the middle? Judah, Judea. So that land was, was given by an agreement to the Seleucids, but the Ptolemies, they've been living there for 20 or 30 years. They don't want to get up. They don't want to up and move again. So they're like, you want it? Come take it. And it's going to take about 100 years for the Seleucids to, uh, to, to drive them out. And, and they'll do it, but it takes some time. The, uh, so, and, and now, even though this is called the Egyptian era, don't think that these are Egyptian people that are, that are the predominant ones in the land. These are Ptolemaic, uh, these are Greeks who have come to inhabit the land and intermarried. So they are Greek people. They are, they are Hellenized people, but they're living in Egypt, hence the Egyptian era. So that the Ptolemies have a relative tolerance of the Jews. The Jews are allowed... Uh, considerable religious freedom and the right to self-govern. The the Greeks the Greeks are very, were very um, inclusivistic. They were very um, syncretistic. They were welcoming of other peoples and other you know other uh, 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 other philosophies and other religions. Just as long as you can put everything on the shelf, you know the the, the Greeks were fine with that. As long as you worship my gods too, you can go ahead and keep worshiping your god. Um, the Jews. Now, can you see how that might not bode well with Orthodox, hardline, uh, uh, truly faithful Jews? Jew, uh, the, the Greeks are inclusive. The Jews are exclusive. Um, the only thing that kind of holds the peace for a while is the fact that the Jews really don't have a desire to evangelize the Gentiles, the the the, the, the nations. Um, they are content to just to just be their own people to be Jews and so for a while that 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 allows them to kind of live peacefully the 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 Greeks are really kind of weirded out and they they think a lot of the Jewish customs circumcision uh uh, animal sacrificing um um Sabbath you know taking a day off of work to to worship an invisible God that doesn't even have an idol for you to look at they they look at the Jews with suspicion and for the time being, they're, they're relatively tolerant. The Seleucids are not going to be like that, though. Uh, during this time, uh, so they're, they're living, they're coexisting peacefully, but more and more Jews are becoming Hellenized. They're giving in to the Greek culture. And, and just as you can look around today, um, you can see how if you hold to your faith, there are going to be times where it will cost you. I mean, we can see that, right? We can see that when it comes to business practices, business deals. 
Um, you know, if you're a Christian, and can you can you even think of running for office these days? No. So um, it is socially speaking, politically speaking, economically speaking, it is to your advantage if you compromise just a little bit. So over time, more Jews are becoming Hellenized, and the rift between the more liberal and the more conservative Jews grows. Many Jews end up neglecting or abandoning the distinctive things, the rites, the practices that make them Jewish due to Hellenism. Again, circumcision, uh, they cut that right out. Observing the Sabbath, monotheism, dietary laws, and sacrifices. And so worship becomes more external and shallow. Uh, During this time, um, because there is more compromise going on, because more liberal, uh, uh, less orthodox, more compromising Jews, uh, because that's becoming the norm as a response to that, you have uh, the more orthodox Jews uh, more rigidly adhering to orthodoxy and what the word of God says and the one true God. And they call themselves the Hasidim or the pious ones. And these are going to be the predecessors of which, which uh, party in the New Testament? Who can guess? Fair guess. Pharisees. Uh, one good thing about Hellenism, about the, the, the spread of Greek was, the, uh, was with the language. It's now necessary. I mean, no, nobody speaks Hebrew anymore. Uh, and I'm not even sure if the Old Testament was translated into Aramaic. But um, it is now warranted for, to have the Old Testament scriptures translated into Greek. Now, allegedly, there were 70 or 72 scribes commissioned um, uh, to translate, to do the translation, and it took 70 or 72 days. So because of the 70s, allegedly, that's why it's called the Sep 70, or 7, Septuagint. All right, so now we get, uh, so as I said earlier, the, the uh, Palestine, was it was allotted to the Seleucids who live in Syria, and Syria is Syria's right here, just north of of uh, Israel and Judah. Uh, the land was allotted to the Seleucids, but the Ptolemies were still living there, so they 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 warred for about a hundred years. Um, the Syrians uh, beat back the Ptolemies uh, at the Battle of Panion in 198. BC, and they reacquire Judea. Now they do they do reacquire the land, but around this time there is a force, there is a people coming from the west. So a, a, as the Seleucids are moving to the west, there is a group from the west moving east. Who do you think that is? Rome. Rome has. Rome had been a republic for about three or four hundred years. They are now big enough that they are beginning their conquests. And they're not quite ready to invade the Levant. And, uh, you know, I mean, uh, uh, that's hilly area. Uh, beyond that is desert. It, it is, uh, it's not exactly easy to, to, to conquer. 
And so they're not quite ready to go in yet. And so as the Seleucids are moving west, the, the Rome's, Rome is, uh, is, is on the back door. And rather than invade the Seleucids, they, um, they, they do have some skirmishes, and they, they do two things. They, in, they invoke a um, – they, they do have some military victories, but they don't uh, invade. But because they defeated them, they invoke um, uh, tribute, uh, 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 tribute laws. And so they figure over the next 15, 20, 30 years, they're going to bankrupt the Seleucids. And if you're bankrupt, you can't raise up an army, and you can't arm your army. So they'll, they'll plan to uh, invade in the future. The other thing they do is because they, because they, uh, they are anti-Seleucids, because they want to, to govern these people, they're going to employ the, the principle that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Who did the Ptolemies kick out of the, uh, kick out of the land? I'm sorry, who did the – I just gave it away. Who did the Seleucids just defeat rough, uh, pretty, pretty, just previously? The Ptolemies. So the Romans become friends with the Ptolemies. And that's going to that's gonna, uh, contribute something later. Uh, the, the Ptolemies are friends with Rome because they're anti-Seleucid. Because and, and, what, what Rome wants to do is, is, is rather than leaving bits of their armies in the lands they conquer, they want to have um, kings and leaders that are loyal to them. And so where possible, they make friends, and, and uh, especially when it comes to making friends that are enemies with your enemies. So the, now that the uh, Seleucids are in control, and they're only going to possess the land for about 40 or 50 years, again, it's not a... It's not a secure hold of the land. It's not a, uh, it's not a very powerful control of the land because just beyond Judea is, are the Roman forces and the, and the Ptolemaic uh, uh, people. So, the, so Judea and that area around Judea is really the most they can go. The Seleucids are far less tolerant of the Jews. And uh, a couple years into uh, this period, the, the Hellenized Jews, you know, again, there's conflict between the Hellenized Jews and the Orthodox Jews. The Hellenized Jews have an idea. Let's bribe the Seleucid king into putting uh, uh, the high priest. And by this point, the high priest had become, you know, was their only ruler because there's no king. So they get this idea. Let's, let's, put, let's put one of our guys in the high priest's office. You know, let's make one of our guys the president. And in order to do this, since, since the Seleucids are technically their overlords, they try to bribe uh, King Antiochus Epiphanes IV to come in and, and, and forcefully put this guy that they choose on the throne, or I'm sorry, in the, in the priestly office. But that doesn't end well because the, the, the Ptolemaic uh, and Orthodox Jews that are still in the area, they see what's going on. There, uh, there is a... Um, uh, uh, an Orthodox high priest currently as the high priest, and he's not just going to abdicate. He's not just going to peacefully let his priesthood be abdicated. And so they resist this. And Antiochus Epiphanes, he he already does not like the Jews. He hates the Jews. Uh, he is very anti-Semitic. And so he comes in in a fit of rage, and he uh, he kills Jews left left and right. He uh, he, he outlaws Orthodox Judaistic practices, um, the, the feasts, 
Sabbath observance, uh, again, circumcision, sacrifices. Old Testament scrolls are burned or destroyed. And Jews are forced to eat pork. And, and really the, the, the capstone of this is he goes into the temple and he builds an altar to Zeus and he offers up a pig on it. And that is the uh, abomination of desolation that you read about in Daniel. So the Jews, as far as uh, religious developments during these 40 or 50 years, uh, the people are undeniably divided over over Hellenism that has now infiltrated. You, you can't deny Hellenism has infiltrated and become a problem in Judea. On one hand, you have the you have the more uh, uh, pragmatic, you know, they're either pragmatic or compromised, however you want to look at it. The more pragmatic Jews who are they're better off economically. They're better off politically, and they are associated with the office of the high priests. Uh, and then, you, on the other hand, you have the more orthodox Jews who are convinced from the scriptures God's judgment fell upon us in the first place because we went after other gods, because we didn't obey his word, and because we compromised with the Gentiles. So the, the compromise... the um, the more pragmatic Jews, uh, they're associated with the priesthood, and they, that group becomes the Sadducees. The other group that is, that is more rigid and orthodox and unmoving in their beliefs, these, uh, these become the Pharisees. You know, these are the Hasidim, the pious ones. Now we get the Maccabean era. Maccabee means hammer, so I like to uh, fondly refer to this as hammer time. One, so almost a century, and there's a, there's a cute little Judas Maccabus right there. I wish I wish they had made a plush little hammer to put in his hand. But so it's called the Maccabean era uh, because uh, as you know, uh, Antiochus Epiphany has come in. He's he's um, outlawed basically all Jewish stuff, and uh, there is a. Uh, one of his officials comes in to uh, the town of Modin, which is northwest of Jerusalem, and he tries to forcefully um, enforce uh, heathen sacrifice. And there are some Jews that, that go along with this. Mattathias, who is uh, rigorously zealous for, uh, for the Torah, for the law, he kills the, the Jew who compromised. He also kills the Syrian official, and then he flees into the mountains with his family. And thousands of and thousands of Orthodox Jews rally behind him. And so after he dies, uh, three of his sons lead the revolt in succession. Judas Maccabus, uh, who I think is the most well-known, and then Jonathan, and then Simon. Now, uh, in the first year, they were so successful that they retook Jerusalem, they cleansed the temple, and they restored Orthodox worship. And uh, in, 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 in the continuing years, uh, they would continue to expand. And you have to remember, 50 years, uh, around 50 years before this point, who's on the doorstep preventing the Seleucids from going any further? The Romans. The Romans are right there. They can see this revolt. And so 
uh, the, the, the Seleucids are kind of in a, between a rock and a hard place because they have this revolt going on in their hometown, and they also have the Romans who are just waiting to pounce. And so they really can't, they can't contain this revolt. They, just, they don't have the manpower. They don't have the supplies. They don't have the resources. And so uh, under several campaigns and over the course of the next uh, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, uh, the, the, the Jews under the leadership of the Maccabees uh, expand their Tory nearly to Old Testament boundaries. In 142 BC, Ju- uh, Judah, Judea uh, establishes its independence. Now, it's it's. Um, there, I should have put a little asterisk uh, beside that because by this point, they are considered friends of Rome. Uh, Rome is considered their protector. They're they're kind of their bullying big brother who's looking over their looking over their shoulder. So they're not truly independent, but compared to what they've been subjected to for the last 300 years, they are independent. So by this point, uh, the, the high priest has certainly become a more political and less, less religious office. One of the most famous uh, uh, Hasmoneans, the, um, the, the, the Maccabees were of the house of Hasmon, so Hasmoneans, uh, John Hyrcanus, who was a governor and high priest, he conquers the Transjordan. That's the area to the east of Judea. And also Edomia, which is the area uh, to the south where the, the, the old Edomites used to live. These, those were uh, Esau's descendants. And then uh, so he's, he's conquering all this land. He's victorious. Uh, he also defeats the Samaritans, and he tries to um, get them to become Jews. They refuse. The, the Idumeans, they, 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 be, they uh, converted to Judaism in a day. The Samaritans, uh, he, he gives the Samaritans the same, um, the same offer, you know, become Jews or, or will, you know. And they say, no, we're not, we're not Jews. So he destroys their temple, and all this power and popularity goes to his head, and uh, John Hyrcanus calls himself the king of Judea. And he also declares himself, uh, he officially becomes a Sadducee. Now, the Pharisees were very unhappy with this for two reasons. Hyrcanus was a non-Aaronic, non-Levitical priest, and now, he's, now he is a non-Davidic king. That's not, that's not uh, following what scripture said. So then you have the Roman era. Now, Hyrcanus has two sons, Aristobulus II and Hyrcanus II, and they both claim to be high priest, which that can cause some problems. I mean, sibling rivalry is never good, but uh, they both claim to be high priest. Now, by this point, the Syri- uh, Rome has come in. This, you know, the, uh, as the Maccabeans, who are friends with Rome by this point, they're beating back the Seleucids. The R- Romans have no reason not to. You know, they're not invading Judea. They're just passing through friendly territory, and they and they they beat back the Seleucids, uh, which were in Syria and uh, and Babylon. So the Seleucids are gone. They're they're, they're wiped out. Uh, and Pompey, has, General Pompey, uh, is has, is returning from that uh, campaign. He's nearby, and when Rome hears that there is a little turmoil going on in their 
with their friends in Judea, they dispatch Pompey to intervene and keep the peace. And Aristobulus, one of the high priests, he tells Pompey, this is none of your business, you can't come in here, neener, neener, neener. Pompey, being a Roman general, doesn't like neener, 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 and he promptly uh, raises Jerusalem and uh, destroys a good chunk of the city, and Judea loses a bit of territory and is forfeited to the Roman province. In 47 BC, Julius Caesar uh, appoints, uh, he wants someone to, to, who's kind of Jewish, but not fully Jewish, so he takes an Idumean by the name of Antipater and makes him the Judean pro, uh, procurator, which is kind of like, it's like, a word, it's like another word for king or, or governor. And after seven years, his son, Herod, who is, remember, he's an Idumean, he's not a Jew. He is an Idumean, is appointed king of the Jews by Rome. And that's what, that's what you have when you open to Matthew. So I'm going to try to do this as quick as an unladen swallow. The religious developments in this era, by this point, we have the Pharisees. Now, their name means separated ones. They are closely associated with the scribes, those who handle the, the, the scriptures. Uh, they greatly emphasized a strict adherence to the law. And they propagated uh, what is called the oral law and what's called in Matthew 15 and Mark 7 the tradition of the elders, what was um, what was espoused to be a bunch of laws that Moses passed down to the to the elders of his, of ancient Israel that you know maybe he didn't have enough stone tablets to write these down but it, supposedly allegedly there was a long tradition of these laws being kept and and they these were these were how God's law is applied in every aspect and detail of your life now I gave Charlie a, a book that I have and it has uh, all 613 laws. And if you want to leaf through that, I, I have a, a little piece of paper. I have a bookmark in there so you can just turn to it. Um, now, those uh, we only have one example of, of the tradition of the elders. And, and what Jesus says about it is, is um, it, it, these were doctrines of men. These was not, this did not originate from God. And the, the sad irony was, was that these, this oral law, this tradition, actually nullified what God's law did say. And we have the example of the Korban law, where you're supposed to honor your father and mother. So when they get older and they, and they can't take care of themselves, you take care of them. But a man could, could, say, could, could dedicate the money that was supposed to go to his parents and say, uh, this money, uh, it, 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 I gotta, it's dedicated to the temple. It's dedicated to God's work. Sorry, Mom and Dad, I can't help you now because the money you were supposed to get, it's given to God. And Jesus says you, that, that they did many other things like that. That's the only example we're given. Uh, the oral law would be written down and codified as the Mishnah, uh, Mishnah in about 200 A.D., Then we get the Sadducees, whose name either means righteous ones or of the line of Zadok. They, these were associated with the priestly families and the high priest. 
And they're, they're, uh, as we've already seen, we've, these are drawn more to social, political, financial gain more than spiritual matters. They really don't care about what a priest was supposed to be. Uh, they are associated with the wealthy arist- aristocratic families of Jerusalem. And they are very, very skeptical of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are hard-lined and rigid and old-fashioned and irrelevant. Um, I just want you to see this. The, ha- the, the priesthood were in control, and the glimpse of the hierarchy that appears in the Gospels showed they were the virtual rulers of the temple and they participated in the revenues that derived from the sale of animals for sacrifices and from the exchange of money involved in the temple taxes. Do you imagine? I mean, you can imagine why Christ, who was gentle and lowly and meek, gentle with sinners, gentle with women, gentle with children, how does he respond when he goes in the temple and he sees all the commerce? When he sees worship reduced to enslaved commerce that's that's because of the sadducees we get the zealots these were rebels and insurrectionists who resisted roman and herodian rule they did not like greek stuff hellenism bad they were like the pharisees in that they were very conservative but at the where the pharisees at least held out uh they believed that messiah was coming and they would liberate the jews the, the uh, zealots believed God helps those who help themselves. We need to do something to kick them out. Um, they were largely responsible for the Jewish revolt in 70 AD, and at least one of Jesus' disciples was a zealot. And that was Simon. The last group, not mentioned directly in the New Testament, but possibly alluded to in a couple places, one being Colossians 2, is the Essenes. It's important to know about them because it was in an Essenic, um, uh, on the outskirts of an Essenic community near the Dead Sea that the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Now, there was a lot of weird, mystical stuff, like bad stuff found among the scrolls. But among the scrolls was a nearly, I think it might have been a complete copy of Isaiah. Before that was found, the oldest manuscript that we had was from around 200 AD about uh, this this copy of Isaiah was from around 200 BC and it uh, around um, which was or it might have even been older but it was um, it was before the time that the skeptics think Isaiah wrote and when compared with what uh, with what we have in Isaiah it says exactly the same thing so it verifies that, that, that Isaiah is much older than the skeptics think it was and that it's accurate. Um, they were monastic. They were content to just be isolationists. They, they just, you know, go out, you know, live on, a, live on top of a hill. Don't talk to nobody the rest of your life. Bury your head in the sand. And they were mystical. They, they kind of felt that God is in you and you are in God. And, um, you know, you can commune with God and you don't need the scripture. And they had... Uh, they had absolutely zero evangelistic desire. All right. Uh, I can do this in two minutes. Actually getting on to an overlook of the New Testament. The Testament comes from, uh, is the word for covenant, refers to the new covenant that Jesus enacted. 
uh, looking at the canon. Uh, the canon is the the list of the canon is not inspired. It is a list of inspired books. And there's a misconception that Constantine, uh, during the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., that they they sat down and they determined what books were and were not inspired. That that's not true. Uh, most of the books were were inspired as soon as they were received by their audience in the first century. The only books that took a while to be recognized as authoritative and inspired were six books. Uh, second, uh, Hebrews, because we don't know who wrote it. That's why I say Bob wrote it. Second, Peter, because his Greek is so d- much more eloquent than the Greek in First Peter. Second and third, John, Jude, and Revelation. Those were the only ones that took time to be ex- accepted and recognized. All the others uh, were recognized by the church uh, within the first 20, 30 years as they were disseminated. The authors of the of the New Testament, the old has 40 plus, several of them being unknown or Bob's. In the New Testament, we, we have eight or nine. Uh, nine if you conclude Hebrews was written by an unknown. Eight if you think, uh, which my view is that Luke, or that was that a Hebrews um, was written by Luke and it was a summary of a, a Pauline sermon. Old Testament took a thousand years to write. New Testament took around 25 years, um, around a 25-year block. Um, I'm sorry, it took 50 years to write. Most of them being within a 25-year block. Uh, all of John's, uh, all of John's book came between 80 and 95 A.D. And the way that they're laid out, you have the historical books in the beginning: Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Then you have the epistolary. You have the instructive letters, the letters written to, to churches or to peoples, beginning with, with Paul's letters. And then you have what's called the general letters. Those are, those are letters that are written to uh, multiple churches, to everyone. And then you have Revelation. Language, Old Testament, primarily Hebrew, some Aramaic and Daniel. New Testament, Greek. And where the Hebrew is, is rich and warm, Where the Hebrew is rich and warm, and that, that imagery um, helps vividly portray the narrative, the Greek, the Greek is precise. The Greek has tenses and cases and precise vocabulary. And that really serves to help articulate the doctrines found in the epistles. All right, that was two minutes. So that was just a, a, a brief glimpse into the, into the white pages of your Bible between the Old and New Testament. Hopefully, as we begin Matthew next week, a lot of a lot of things that you look at, and, and please, if you have the time, read Matthew. Meet, read Matthew this week. Um, hopefully, some of the some of the names of people and places and and uh, developments you'll recognize and you'll understand more. So let me close in prayer because we don't have time for questions. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, which is infallible. Thank you for this church. Please use this time to edify uh, this body. Amen.